Amen. Thank you, Blake, and praise team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Has there ever been a, a time in your life where you have looked down the road of your life and you kind of get a sense of what is coming? Either because you've seen somebody else go through it and you know that you're headed in that same direction or whatever you, have, you know that's, that something is coming. You're preparing your life for something you know is coming. You imagine those movies that you sometimes see where two characters are separated by some distance and they're walking down the same path and the first one falls into a trap and it's just kind of this sense of uh, I don't know, foreboding that the person walking behind him is going to fall into the same trap if they're not careful. You ever look down the path of your own life and maybe you've seen your mom and dad go through some things and you know that's coming to you. Maybe some serious things like illness or cancer, you know that that's in your future. Or maybe it's some unserious things like male pattern baldness. I've never had to deal with any of that. These flowing locks have just been... My dad looked at me one time when I was a kid and he said, take a good look, son. This is what you're going to turn into. And he was right. Um, two weeks ago, uh, the last time we were in Matthew, we looked at the rejection that Jesus faced by his own family, members of his own household there in the town of Nazareth. And then this week, what we're looking at in our passage is rejection again of the kingdom that has been preached uh, through the beheading of John. This time, it's not by people of his family or by the lowly and mild, but by the ruling class, by the elite in society. And what we'll be left with, I think, by the time we get to the end of this passage, is a sense of foreboding for us. What does this passage actually say to us as Christians who are watching John the Baptist get his head cut off. Let's look in our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. 
And they went and told Jesus. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider the words in this text that are before us, I pray that you help us to understand them. By your Spirit, give us the wisdom that it takes not only to understand it as an academic exercise, but apply it to our lives that we may live holier because we have encountered your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the last couple of weeks, or I guess it's been probably about a a month or more, we've seen Jesus going around preaching the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he's been doing this since the beginning of the book of Matthew, or at least since he began his ministry. And we've seen in the last few weeks that Jesus' preaching or his proclaiming of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, has not always been well received. Sometimes it was accepted by people. Um, Sometimes it was uh, received with questions. Is this guy really the Messiah? Is he really serious? And sometimes it is flat out rejected by many people. Jesus, we saw a couple of weeks ago, is rejected by members of his own household, members of his own family. And we know that he's rejected by members of his own family because the Gospel of John actually tells us that very plainly that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him during his ministry. Now, we don't know when their faith came. Maybe it was at the resurrection, uh, or maybe it was a little bit later. We know that, they, that most of them eventually came to faith, but it certainly wasn't during the time of his ministry. So in the small village of Nazareth, just in the, in the past passage, we see Jesus visiting with the common folk that are there in Nazareth, the ones that know Jesus the best, and he's rejected. In our text this morning, we go from the small village of Nazareth with the average kind of blue-collar Galilean worker all the way to the palace of the ruler of the area. The stakes of rejection of the message of the kingdom are raised. Why? Because in this passage, John the Baptist is murdered for it. So all of us who are living our lives by the kingdom are now going, wait a second. Now the stakes are are, are really serious here. John the Baptist has been murdered for his testimony of the message of repentance. Oh, that's significant. This passage, at first blush, You might read it. I'm sure you've read it a thousand times. And it might seem just like one of those transitional stories that gets you from one place to another. But it's actually pivotal to Matthew's gospel. Why? Because in this passage, the eye of Herod has fallen on Jesus of Nazareth. The very one who is going to cut off the head of John the Baptist is now looking at Jesus. And so we're left with a sense of foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus at the end of this gospel. So in this brief little story that we've just read, there are three characters that take center stage, that the, the, the passage is mostly about. So the first one in the story is obviously John the Baptist. It, it's around him that the whole story kind of centers and around his, his death at the hands of Herod. 
The second and the most prominent one in the story is Herod himself. And we gain more than just a little insight into Herod and his thought process through this passage if we're paying attention. And then, of course, the last is Jesus himself, whose miraculous works draw the ire of Herod and perhaps even the fear of Herod. And so this morning, I want us to just consider each one of those characters in the story. There's not going to be any notes on the screen or anything like that. It's just three characters as we go through. The first thing that I want us to see is the resolve of John the Baptist. So John's death might come as a surprise to you if you're just reading this story for the first time because the last time you saw John the Baptist, yes, he was in prison, but he was sending emissaries to Jesus to ask if he really was the Messiah. That happened in chapter 11. And so if you're following John's story throughout Matthew, you see in chapter 4, 3 and 4, he's preaching the message of the kingdom. And then in chapter 4, he gets arrested. And it's not then again until chapter 11 where he sends emissaries questioning whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah. And then all of a sudden we're in chapter 14 and he's dead. And so in chapter 14, starting in verse 3 and going all the way through verse 12 is a flashback scene. Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. At which point the reader, when Herod says that, thinks to himself, wait, John the Baptist is dead? I didn't even know he was dead. When did he die? And so Matthew pauses the story, and he goes back and gives us the backstory about how John's death came about. So I want you to notice just a few things about John's death that's pointed out to us here. First, notice that John is preaching God's moral law to Herod, and he's expecting Herod to live his life by it. That's more than just a little strange. John the Baptist is going to Herod Antipas and is preaching God's moral law and expecting Herod to live by it. Look at what he says in verse 4. It is not lawful for you to have her. He means, of course, it's not lawful according to Leviticus 20.21. Leviticus 20.21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. So Herod the Tetrarch, who is is often called Herod Antipas, is one of the sons of Herod the Great. So when Herod the Great died, he divided up his kingdom. He ruled the area of what we would now call Palestine or the Promised Land, however you want to call it. He, He ruled that entire area. And when he died, his kingdom was divided up amongst four different people, three of which were his sons. And so each one of those four people is ruler over a fourth of the kingdom. Therefore, the name becomes Tetrarch, which literally just means ruler over a fourth. Okay, So he's the ruler over a fourth of the kingdom. Herod the Great had something like 15 sons, and all of them have the name Herod in their name. So tracking down who all these people are is a nightmare for a historian. All right? Not only that, but obviously we're going to see in this scene their marital practices were not awesome at the time either. So that also complicates things a lot when your family tree doesn't fork. Um, So uh, Herod the Tetrarch, in fact, the entire Herodian family are vile people. I mean, the vilest of people. 
These people aren't the bastions of morality in the land. And yet here is John the Baptist, and he's holding Herod to the standards of the Jewish law. Now, how corrupt are they? Well, the guy in this scene went to visit his brother Philip, uh, Herod Philip, okay? Went to visit his brother Herod Philip, who was married at the time to Herodias. And his brother opened the doors to him, gave him a spare bedroom or whatever, And he takes a liking to his brother's wife. And she takes a liking to him. So he goes back to the Galilean region over which he is ruler of a fourth of that kingdom. And he writes letters and sends, you know, all kinds of correspondence back to Herodias, who is his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And lo and behold, she comes and lives with him and becomes his wife. Now, John is preaching straight to Herod on his own moral choices and his need for repentance in this situation as if Herod himself, as the leader of this area, is supposed to submit to God's moral authority. Imagine that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think John is standing there preaching like that to Herod? Something that we would say, don't waste your breath, man. Why do you think he's preaching like that to Herod? Well, we aren't told for sure, but it seems rather plausible from the story so far, the trail of breadcrumbs, if you follow them through the gospel, that John obviously is fully aware that Jesus has now come into the world. And he believes Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He knows this because it's been told to him. And so here is the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sins of the world and who is coming to install God's kingdom, at least in this area, and also on the earth. And we know the name and location of that Messiah. John knows about it. John's met him. John has been assured that he is for real. And so John's preaching to Herod has a sense of urgency to it. Now remember, the Jews thought that when Jesus came the first time, that he was going to set up his forever kingdom right then and there. Their thinking about the first coming of Jesus is very similar, though not exact, but very similar to our thinking about Jesus' second coming. So that's in John's mind as he gets arrested and he's preaching to Herod. So his preaching to Herod sounds a lot like it did to the Pharisees when he's standing in the river where he says his axe is laid to the root, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He said, hey, he's coming in with his axe in his hand and he's going to chop you to the ground. So it's evident from the story without making a leap at all that John feels like he's playing with house money at this point. Look, I'm, he's, he's saying to Herod, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what you need to hear because we now have a name and location for God's Messiah. We're not waiting anymore. And any second now, he's about to wreck shop over all this place. And you're going to be embarrassed, Herod, even though you're supposedly king over this area. So it's a warning. Now put yourself in John's shoes for just a moment. Okay, so just think about that for just a moment. Let's pretend for just a second that Jesus came into this room right here. I mean, physically, he was standing right here, and we all recognized him as Jesus. We all knew that's who he was. And he said to us, 
I'm about to come back. And it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be really soon. We're talking a matter of days it's going to be. Okay? I'm coming, and you need to know that. What would you do? How many people would you tell? What would your sense of urgency over the gospel be at that moment? You would walk out of here, and you would begin calling people that you know. Hey, you need to know Jesus is coming back soon, and you need to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is in John's mind right then, as he goes to prison. Now, it seems to be obvious when you take into account what John did probably about a year after he was thrown into prison. What did he do? He sent emissaries to Jesus to ask him if he really was the Messiah. He's starting to doubt. I know I heard that you are. I know I had assurance of that, but now I'm beginning to doubt. And so he's sending his emissaries, probably, we think, about a year into his imprisonment. Well, he's been preaching that Jesus is about to wreck shop over Herod. Then he gets thrown into prison and he's sitting there for a while, all the while preaching the kingdom of heaven, telling the ruler of the land that you have to submit to God's holy law. And then he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And at some point he starts thinking, any day now, well, any day now, you can set up your kingdom. We've, we've been talking about this. I know you are. Um, we're ready. If nothing else, this story puts a close on John's portion of the book. And what does it let us know? It lets us know that John got the message that he received from Jesus, and he began preaching all the harder. He began preaching every bit as hard as he did when he was thrown into prison. When the church is at its best, it has a tenuous relationship with governmental powers, a very thin relationship with governmental powers and authorities. The right relationship of the church to the government is the church preaching to the government without expecting to use the government's powers to further the kingdom of God. That's the place where the church hits its stride. See, the church is the government's conscience. There to remind the government of its responsibilities in accordance with Romans 13 and other passage, other passages. Basically giving approval to the do-gooder, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer, and God's servant for our good. That's what you are, government. You're nothing more and nothing less. You dare not be anything more than that, and you better not be anything less than that. The church is the conscience for the government. There have certainly been periods of church history where the church has been driven into silence through persecution and other means. But there were also times where the church's preaching turned into white noise, which is another kind of silence, because it sought to leverage the governmental powers into powers for themselves for the spread of the kingdom. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it weakened the church. But the times in history where the church has borne the greatest witness for Christ has been where the phrase or the command, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was preached to those in positions of power and authority in spite of the fact that preaching to them might mean that the church loses power and authority in the culture. Because think about it for just a second. Nothing speaks to the Christian's belief in eternal life like a Christian preaching to the powers that be in spite of the fact that it might mean they die for it. How can you testify to your belief in eternal life any more than that? Than preaching to somebody that you know is going to kill you. How can you testify to your belief in life after death than that? How can a Christian proclaim any more strongly that he believes that Christ's kingdom is way more powerful than the kingdom of man than to preach to the positions of power and authority telling them to repent in spite of the fact that doing so means that they're going to say to you, well, if if you preach that way, you're not going to have any power here. We're going to take all the power from you. What better way can you testify that you don't care than to preach anyway? What better way to testify that you know the kingdom of Christ is eternal and lasting than to give up power and authority here and now? John is referred to by Jesus on a couple of occasions as Elijah. He refers to him as that in 11:13 and then again in 17, 11 and 12. And Jesus of course doesn't mean that Elijah uh, that John the Baptist is Elijah reincarnate, but that like Elijah, John the Baptist would also preach into the wind. Just like Elijah preaches to the powers and authority, the cultural wind, the cultural power is coming this way and is going this way. And John and Elijah both stand in the stream and preach against the wind. Preach into it. Preach against the governmental powers and authorities. But in in 17.12, Matthew 17.12, Jesus tells us this about John. He says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. John is certainly a model for the kind of resolve that is mandated for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But then next I want you to consider the response of Herod. Um, It's obvious that John's preaching was grating on the nerves of Herodias, who is Herod's new wife slash sister-in-law. But Herod was intrigued by John's preaching. And, and we know that because Mark tells us that in Mark 6.20. He says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod, it seems, though he was wicked, was a rather weak man. And Herodias, we know not only from this text, but also from history, that she was also wicked But she was wicked and ruthless. And so we have a situation very much like Elijah is dealing with, with Ahab and Jezebel, where Jezebel is kind of calling the shots and she is a very wicked and ruthless person. And Ahab is weak and so is here. Herod, it seems, is mostly weak as water. 
And so three times in this passage, if you're paying attention, three times Herod seems to do what he does not necessarily want to do, but he does it because of fear of other people. The first time, look at verse 3. Herod doesn't put John in prison for his own sake, but for the sake of his wife slash sister-in-law. Then the second time we see it is in verse 5. Herod thinks it would probably be just better to kill John outright than to keep him in prison, but he doesn't want to. Why? Because he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so we get to the third scene. Herod has a birthday party. And as entertainment for the birthday party, he has Salome, which is his, the daughter of his wife slash sister-in-law and his brother, which makes her his niece slash stepdaughter. At some point, Herod's going to become his own grandpa along the way. Uh, somehow. All right. So if you're keeping score at home, here's his niece slash stepdaughter coming to entertain, no doubt provocatively dance for all of the men there at Herod's birthday party. And Herod makes what is most likely a drunken mistake by offering in verse 7 a reward to Salome, this girl, with with whatever she wanted. We know from the other gospels, up to half my kingdom, he says uh, to her. And so her mother, who hates John the Baptist, pokes Salome in the ribs and says, look, I want John's head on a platter. And she's like, I I want a car. And she's like, I don't care. You're getting John's head on a platter. And so she asks for John's head on a platter. And so then we get to the third time where Herod is confronted by this desire that uh, Herodias and Salome want. And in verse 9, it says, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So he made an oath, and his guests heard him make the oath. And so he is sorry, and he doesn't really, it seems like, want to kill John now. But he begins again here to act out of fear, this time out of fear of his friends that have heard him make this pledge. And so he, to save face, grants the request. So you have two completely opposite people in this passage. Two completely opposite people. You have John the Baptist who submitted to God's rule in his heart and he sets his face like flint against the winds of Herod's kingdom and he preaches repentance of even the most powerful people in society. And then you have Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, who has all the authority a man could possibly hope for on this earth, and yet he lives his life by fear that someone might take from him his kingdom. So if you're looking at these two men in this story, which kingdom would you have to say offers the greater sense of security in time of need? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? The preaching of truth hits different pagan people differently. Uh, Some pagans are so intrigued by preaching that they download podcasts or they even show up in the backs of churches and listen to preaching. They listen to the singing. They hear what's going on. They don't believe any of it and they're not inclined to believe any of it, but they come and they listen because they're intrigued by what goes on there. 
And, and that's much like Herod. And then still you have other pagans like Herodias who would never darken the door of a church and would just as soon see all of them burned to the ground as ever set foot inside a church. We see this as evident of the world's reaction in Revelation 11.10 as they rejoice over the dead bodies of, these, of the two prophets because they say, they exchange presents, they make merry, and it says they do so because they, these prophets were a, a torment to us while they were alive. In other words, many who are ensnared in sin will eventually grow tired over time of hearing time after time that they need to repent. And they will eventually resort to extreme measures, even murder, if that be the case. Herodias is obviously already there as she wants her daughter to ask for nothing more in the kingdom. He offers up to half his kingdom. She turns it down. She just wants his head on a platter. And we often preach about, we often pray about, we often think about, we may even often dream about, we often talk about with each other the day, a day, when and if it would happen where revival would break out across the world. We think to ourselves how great that would be when revival breaks out. But of course, I don't know that we give too much thought about the word revival. Because revival implies that the subject has already been vived the first time. So what we're talking about is not necessarily sinners coming to repentance, but revival being that the actual people of God re-realize their sense of purpose has been renewed, their sense of mission has been renewed, that our preaching will become more convicting and more fervent as we proclaim it, that our lives would actually match what we preach, that they would also become more godly. And we dream about that day because when and if that day ever came where the church actually believes what it's preaching and actually lives out what it's preaching, then the culture will naturally see that what we're preaching and what we live actually match and they'll seem to be inclined toward the gospel and they'll turn and ask for forgiveness from the Lord and they'll submit to his rule and they'll come back to church and they'll fill the pews and they'll do all of these kinds of things because they have seen the church actually living out what it says it believes. But we need to consider seriously the more likely perspective. That after years of the church being silent, that after years of the church being cowardly in its witness with its coworkers and friends, that after years of treating marriage the same way the culture treats marriage, that after years of making peace with sin, after years of the church looking rather worldly, not caring about membership, anybody gets in, doesn't matter what you confess or what you believe, that after years of that, that the sound of convictional preaching and the sound of church members witnessing to their friends and coworkers, that instead of being convicting, it will be a nuisance to the world. That they won't want to hear it. And rather than turning in repentance and faith, they turn in vengeance and kill. 
the reason the church has more typically had a very tenuous, very, very thin relationship with the government is because the two are bound to two drastically different value systems. The church should always be beholden to the kingdom of heaven, like we see with John the Baptist, and always want its rule and its reign to take place on earth as Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But the government is always beholden to politics, as we see with Herod. The church, at its best, preaches repentance, and the government will always do what is politically expedient for them to do. As should the day come when the preaching of the gospel results in your death, when the political world sees that it's more expedient to put to death the Christians that are preaching the gospel, and you're included in the lot, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Would that hinder your approach to preaching the gospel if you knew that you were going to face the sword because of it? When Salome tells Herod that what she wants, Herod reveals how weak he really is and what his priorities really are and what he's governed by. Remember, Herod is the one that's somewhat perplexed by John and is intrigued by John and, according to Mark, kind of wanted to protect him. But lest we start to think that Herod is feeling conviction, we see the reality in verse 9 of what he really cares about, which is saving face in front of his party guests. Then the last thing I want us to consider is the results for Jesus and his disciples. An incredible foreshadowing has taken place here. In the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, if you'll look there, Herod, the murderer of John the Baptist, and the highest ruling authority in the region has heard about Jesus. And in the end, the last verse, there in verse 12, Jesus is warned about Herod, or he's told that John is dead. But then in verse 13, Jesus is warned that Herod thinks he is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And so it says Jesus heard this, that Herod thinks you're John the Baptist, and he retreated. Remember, John's death is a side story. We get back to the original narrative of verses 1 and 2, there in verse 13, where Jesus hears that Herod, what Herod thinks about him, and he leaves. And why does he withdraw? Because if Herod killed John, what is he going to do to Jesus? He's going to kill him. And his time had not yet come. So he retreats. Now this whole thing is giving the opposite end of the spectrum. Considering two weeks ago, Jesus is in Nazareth dealing with people of his own home and his own hometown that rejected him. But now he's in the highest authority in the land, or he's in the land, and the highest authority in the land also rejects him. Jesus is being rejected high and low by every member of the totem pole, as it were. The rejection of Jesus by his family and hometown means that he, he doesn't minister to them anymore. He leaves that town. He has no hometown to go to. You realize that? 
So being on the run from his own hometown who chased him off the hill, threatening to kill him, now he goes through the land and the highest ruler in the land also wants to kill him. But you know what you would do if you were out and about and you realized that the governing powers and authorities wanted to kill you? Where would you run? Well, you would run home where you have safety and security. Jesus doesn't have any of that. So the sense of foreshadowing we get here is that Jesus is going to die. All the powerful people hate him and all the people in his hometown hate him. But then remember that verse in Matthew 17, 12, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and he says they did whatever they want to him. I didn't read that whole verse. If you read the rest of the verse, it says, so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. So John was persecuted for preaching about sin in the lives of even the most powerful people in the world. And so Jesus knows that what that means for him, that there is a sense of foreshadowing, that he's walking on that trail too, and he is going to suffer at their hands. But here comes the beauty of the gospel, that actually all of us deserve to suffer at the hands of God himself because of our sin. And the path that Jesus is walking, no one takes his life he lays it down. He's going to the cross knowing what's coming and doing it willingly. Why? So that he can bear the wrath of God on your behalf and on my behalf that anyone who places their faith in him might actually have an eternal kingdom to live for. But Jesus has also told us in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So there has been an unbroken chain throughout church history of people who proclaim the gospel of Christ being persecuted. The beheading of John the Baptist is getting you, the reader, ready for the crucifixion of Jesus. <laughs> but the crucifixion of Jesus is getting you, the, ready, the reader, ready for your own persecution. As you watch the master go through it. In a few more chapters, Jesus is going to suffer. But he's already told us blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Remember that? He's getting you ready for your own persecution. But the question then has to be asked. If you knew persecution was coming, would it alter your behavior on Sunday morning? If you knew that as you walked outside that door, there was going to be someone waiting with a sword or a gun, would it alter your behavior? If you knew that your preaching of the gospel was going to end in your death because of your preaching, would it alter your behavior? 
Here's what I think we should be thinking about. We care an awful lot about politics. We care an awful lot. We demand that our news and our political news come to us 24 hours a day. Most of the time when we turn on the TV, that's the channel that is there. Some 24-hour news network that's constantly giving us a live update of our political feeds. And we rant and we rave and all kinds of things and fight about all kinds of political stuff. That all of it is fighting over the kingdom of man. And I know because I'll get comments. Anytime I touch on politics, I get comments. Left in the plate, all kinds of other things. Because we care deeply, in fact, probably too much about politics. Now, some are going to hear me when I say that, and they're going to think, because I'm a millennial probably, that he doesn't want anybody to vote and whatever, and that's not true at all. Of course, vote. It's given to us. It's a great gift, and you should exercise it. Yeah, you should vote your conscience. You should vote in accordance with the, the kingdom of Christ. You should apply that in the voting booth. And of course, we want to know what's going on in our culture. We want to understand the policies that are being created and why. But we need to leave the results to God. The way some of us speak about politics probably reveals that it's our God and that it's our hope. That if so-and-so is in there or such-and-such happens, then we'll have a sense of security. Does that sound like kingdom of heaven thinking? If we really care about our world, if we really care about our country, then we won't seek to change the country through politics. Of course we vote. Of course we vote our conscience. But we won't seek to change the country through politics. Instead, we would seek to change the country through the preaching of the gospel. We force their hand. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill us? Then do it. Otherwise, come to Christ. See, if the government, if the government that we fall under, the American government, is truly a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, then you don't change the government, you change the people. And the only way possible to change the people is by telling them the gospel of Christ. And it either changes the country or it kills us. Either way. We're in great company. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our resolve. We have obviously elections coming. They seem to always be coming. We've got opportunities to fight and war with each other. Or we have opportunities to demonstrate for everyone that our real hope and our sense of security is in you and your kingdom. 
and the ultimate results that take place afterwards, that's in your hands. So I pray, Father, more that we would have the resolve of John the Baptist. That no matter what, no matter if it's our candidate or others, that we would preach repentance, that we would not fail to call sin what it is, sin. And that we would hold those accountable to your moral law in spite of the fact that they may not currently submit to it. May we preach with a sense of urgency. May we proclaim with a sense of urgency. Knowing that you really are coming any moment now. And that we should be ready. That's very real. But sometimes we don't act like that. I pray we would. Father, go before us. Give us courage and really, truly hope in the words that are contained here in your scriptures. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.